basically, um, one of the key parts of compassionate caution is this, it's, we, you've mentioned it, it's when we're drawing these parallels, it is not that we want to assert sameness across mm -hmm. these systems of power and across these identity experiences. Honestly, I've never said this before, but as we've been sitting here, I've been thinking about compassionate caution means to apply nuance to something. So there's not, if there's not like a GPS system where you can put in your destination and it tells you exactly how to get there, applying something with compassionate caution means to consider it with nuance and to think about empathy when we're mm -hmm. drawing these parallels. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're discussing the new book, Identity Interconnections, Pursuing Post-Structural Possibility in Student Affairs Praxis, with the two editors, Drs. Ariel Ashley and Lisa De La Cruz Combs. I am so excited to learn from you. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code, promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping, including on this book. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity as well. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation. I'm so grateful for you both for joining us today. Let's start with a little bit more of an introduction. Ariel, let's go ahead and start with you. Sure. Thanks so much for um, having us, Keith. So again, my name is Ariel Ashley. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm an assistant professor and the graduate director of the College Counseling and Student Development Master's Program at St. Cloud State University, which is just about an hour north of the Twin Cities Metro. Um, I am calling in from Minneapolis, Minnesota as well, um, and really excited to be here and talk about this project, which has been a labor of love for a few years now um, for Lisa and I. <laughs> Go ahead, Hi, Lisa. everyone. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Keith. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be in community with all of you. My name is Lisa Dela Cruz Combs, and I use she, her, and job pronouns. Keith, I really appreciate you manifesting my future into existence, but I'm actually a PhD candidate and student at Ohio State University, so I'm not a doctor yet, but I'm- Yet! Oh, I know, right. We're yes. just going to speak what we want to have into existence. Yes, yes. absolutely. I loved that you said that. I was like, yes, please speak this into my future. Soon, um, soon. But I'm in the higher education student affairs program and I'm studying topics related to race, multiraciality and liminality. So that's how I'm connected to this work around identity mm. connections. And I am broadcasting in from Columbus, Ohio, which I want to acknowledge as the ancestral and contemporary homelands of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for being here. I, I loved reading this book, uh, some of the, particularly your introduction and your framing, and then all the many different examples throughout was really exciting to me, connected with a lot of things that I've been thinking about for a while, but also opened up some new possibilities and it was really great. So I encourage folks to check it out, but we're gonna have a chance to talk a little bit about it. Um, you're you're the editors. Um, tell us how this project came to be. I think Ariel, they're gonna lead us off here. 
Yeah, so actually it kind of got started with a coffee conversation. So several years ago, Lisa and I were both at Miami University in Ohio and I had the privilege of teaching um, one of uh, Lisa's classes that kind of sparked some conversation and we ended up wanting to just connect outside of class. So we got together, um, had a cup of coffee and just shared stories around our experiences um, uh, as part of, but also feeling kind of conditional relationships to the Asian American community. So I identify as a transracial Asian American adoptee and Lisa is a multiracial um, white and Asian Filipina person. And so we kind of talked about what it meant to always feel like we didn't fully belong to and with um, Asian and white spaces. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of personal story sharing led us to explore some readings together, pursue conversations with other um, uh, mentors, uh, Mark Johnston Guerrero in particular, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of led us to pursuing this idea of, you know, how might folks connect around similar experiences, even if they have distinctly different mm -hmm. uh, positionalities and identities. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of it was the initial um, uh entree into the conversation. And then we had the opportunity through a couple of different conference presentations to further explore what this could evolve into. So it went from being like a personal connection and relationship into a potential praxis or recommendation mm -hmm. for how our field can think about um, inviting folks to connect across differences. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a, a fun journey that's kind of, I mean, been a process, right? I think this has been a five-year endeavor, so. <laughs> five years since that first cup of coffee, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. It's been a great five years, though. It's yeah. been wonderful to work with Ariel, but like she said, I think what happened for us personally was we started drawing connections specifically about existing beyond racial rigidity. We were existing beyond what it means to be Asian American or what people believe it meant to be Asian American. And that was something I'd never talked about that with anyone before. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that experience to be really empowering. But in our conversations, I also noticed that what it means to be a transracial adoptee is still really different than what it means to be multiracial. And in my relationship with Ariel, I learned ways to continue to aspire to show up better as like an aspiring ally for and with mm -hmm transracial adoptees. And I think what we noticed how this became such a big project in a book was that we started recognizing that a lot of people were drawing these parallels across different identity experiences. So mm -hmm. the way that Ariel and I talk about it is it became really pervasive. It was so interesting. Like even as we moved away from each other, like I would get a text from Ariel of like it happened again, or like I noticed mm -hmm. it here and we would jump on a call and talk through it. And mm -hmm. That's when we realized we wanted to continue writing and exploring this idea and what it means to do that with stewardship and care when you're drawing those connections, which mm. we'll probably talk a little bit more about later. Yeah, I think that piece that Lisa just said around like just the ubiquitous nature of this, it wasn't that necessarily people were calling what they were doing, drawing identity interconnections, but just right. the process of trying to understand one's own identity or experience by relating it to something else. Mm -hmm. I remember classroom conversations where students would say like, oh yeah, you know, passing, talking about maybe their experience presenting as heteronormative and then likening that to someone's experience presenting as white who might be multiracial or multi-ethnic. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, we realized like, wow, that's really potentially powerful as people are trying to make more sense right. of who they are. And that could be really dangerous because it could also minimize some of the really distinct differences that are rooted in, um, you know, inherited systems of power. And so mm -hmm. I think that 
that call to compassionate caution um, is really what helps distinguish what we're trying to, to share. And, and our hope is that that better than informs our field to think about how can we use intuitive meaning making processes, but in a way that's um, ethical and responsible and considerate of points of difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I, I've thought about this in a long way and, and the language that I use is cross training. Uh, that's the language that I use when I'm, for me, I have, I, I feel like I have a lot more around whiteness, a lot more sort of academic learning articles and invisible knapsack and Janet Helms and all of these things. And then around my gender and my, my experience as a man, a lot of personal experiences and conversations and reflections. And when it comes to gender, like, oh, I, I'm, I'm not sure what to do here. I often think, well, what if this were an issue of race? And I'm very clear about how I would want to respond as a white person. And so I call that cross-training. I often say, and use very similar language, it's not the same, but it's often similar, right? And I think that's where we get caught up and how do we learn about this? But it's not a, you can always swap, right? You can't always swap and you can't always do that. And I really appreciate you pointing out this identity interconnections as opportunity and possibility and a source of learning and understanding, and also <laughs> a point of caution and you can do harm and you can be misguided. And I think one of the things I see is folks, particularly in identities of privilege, when that becomes uncomfortable and the responsibility there becomes uncomfortable, I'd rather slip in over into this identity um, which maybe is has a lot of pain in it, but it doesn't have the responsibility. Um, yeah. Go ahead, add to that. I was just going to say, we have talked a lot about um, when folks try to draw those connections or parallels to pivot away from their own dominance or complicity. Right. Uh, right. And com um, complicitness in someone else's mm -hmm. oppression, like that's where things start to go awry, right? That's mm -hmm. what we're trying to, like our intent with this book is to help folks recognize that that might be a really um, common natural reaction. Tempting, tempting. Oh, sure. That comes with having to kind of confront the ways in which we are a part of and not separate from um, systems of power, privilege and oppression. And that's what the compassionate call is all about. That invitation to say, rather than maybe take uh, that tempting um, uh, inclination to pivot away from um, the experience at hand, can we use that point of connection and then acknowledge our points of difference to actually have something concrete that we can do then to better show up as an ally for and with each other. Yeah. Lisa, you, you, the two of you use this term compassionate caution. Yeah. Uh, we already referenced it a couple of times. Uh, let's just slow down and explain to listeners what, what does that mean? And just so you know, in, in the book, it's, it's italicized. This is a new term. This is, this is a thing. So tell us what this thing is, compassionate caution. Yeah. It's, it's really funny that you asked me specifically because when Ariel and I were generating this idea I wish like, actually, this is an experience where people are getting to see like me and Ariel's brains work together. Cause sometimes I wish it could, there could be like a fly on the wall in our conversations about some of these topics, but it was in one of these like deep conversations where we were really passionate about it. And I was like, what if we called it compassionate caution and Ariel like loves that. And we kind of just stuck with it. But basically um, one of the key parts of compassionate caution is this it's, we've, you've mentioned it. It's when we're drawing these parallels, it is not that we want to assert sameness across mm -hmm. these systems of power and across these identity experiences. 
honestly, I've never said this before, but as we've been sitting here, I've been thinking about compassionate caution means to apply nuance to something. So there's not, if there's not like a GPS system where you can put in your destination and it tells you exactly how to get there, applying something with compassionate caution means to consider it with nuance and to think about empathy when we're drawing these parallels. And Ariel, do you want to add more to that? Because it's such a complex thing, but I think um, Antonio Duran in one of his chapters talks about it through the lens of stewardship as well, just to make sure that we're handling these conversations with care and intentionality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that really helped us distinguish identity interconnections from some of the previous works that we kind of built upon, in, including identity analogies, which um, Dr. Mark, Drs. Mark Johnston Guerrero and Boutran Estera had um, co-published on, um, is really this, this piece of like, well, what's the purpose of this practice, of this meaning-making connection? And it's not to conflate different experiences to suggest sameness. Rather, it is to provide an opportunity to better understand one's own identity and how you can show up um, for others. And I think that's really what compassionate caution is all about. It's about having humility, um, that it's not about just you and your experience and needing to be understood, um, but it's about recognizing that we are inextricably connected. And so even if you hear an experience that sounds similar, there may be ways in which your positionality um, allows you to think critically about how you could unlearn or disrupt um, things that might contribute to, to someone else's oppression. Yeah, and Lisa, you mentioned the nuance. And as I was reading, I was thinking, I was seeing nuance in some of the stories. I was also seeing paradox. Mm -hmm. And I hope I'm using this right. But for me, nuance is when there's two things and we want to be some, somewhere in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to be in the binary. We want to be in the middle space of that. And then paradox is when it is those two things at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, right? It, it is, both of them are happening. It's not an either or, and there's not a middle. It's like, yeah, this is, I'm getting it and I'm confused at the same time, right? That's a good paradox. That's kind of where I am right here. Yeah. Um, do you, are you noticing that too? Oh, absolutely. That's actually really connected to my dissertation work, which is around liminality as a construct in student development theory of this threshold existence and what it means to exist beyond rigidity, which I've also said a couple of times. But yeah, I think something that Ariel and I talked oh, about- Oh, no, 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 don't, don't move on for that. Tell oh, us yeah. about liminality- <laughs> and threshold theory. Sure, yeah. So um, liminality is a concept that was coined by Victor Turner and actually his wife, Edith Turner as well, who doesn't always get the credit, but they both coined the term and it's from the anthropology, anthropology discipline. And basically it's about existing in this threshold existence. And for the people that can see me, it's like this in-between space. And I often describe it as like just existing beyond existing beyond what currently exists. And so um, specifically for my dissertation, I'm interested in talking with college students that may have liminal identity. So examples are multiracial people, um, students who may um, straddle multiple classes, gender non-binary students, mm -hmm. interfaith students, and talking to them about how they experience liminality and what it means to, like I said, exist beyond the categories that are created by the systems of power. Okay, now, and Ariel, you can jump in here too. Um, tell me about threshold theory, threshold theory, particularly as you refer to it as healing and transformative potential. You want to share first, Lisa? <laughs> no, Ariel, go for it. That's your wheelhouse. 
So, so threshold theorizing, I think for me, part of the reason why it has been um, so like life-giving really, which I mean, how often do we describe theory as life-giving? I think oftentimes that's not the case, but I have really found that to be true in part because um, it has for me been really about connecting like personally with concepts that may otherwise be um, assumed to be only intellectual and only connected to an intellectual realm. Um, so threshold theorizing is um, kind of how Anna Louise Keating situates her work. Um, and Anna Louise Keating um, wrote a great book um, in 2013 called Transformation Now. And that uh, in Transformation Now, Keating kind of outlines three core tenets of interconnectivity. Um, and that has kind of uh, served as the framework for um, how we talk about identity interconnections. Um, but it's really about recognizing that, you know, our personal lived experiences are connected to um, ways of knowing and how we make meaning of the world and, and this idea of theorizing. Um, and that there's a lot of potential in exploring post-oppositional perspectives. Um, okay, what's that mean? <laughs> to the world, sure. So, you know, so often I feel like in popular culture and certainly higher education and student affairs, we have still and rely upon um, kind of dichotomous um, understandings of us versus them, right? Where um, social justice educators or we're super problematic. We mm -hmm. are, you know, um, people of color or white identified folks. And threshold theorizing suggests that that oppositional construction is, um, in some ways limited, like certainly serves a purpose in some ways, recognizing the ways that categories have been established and power has been distributed inequitably by those categories and that those categories um, and those um, oppositional um, dichotomies uh, don't necessarily serve us in terms of the, the liberatory visioning we might hope for in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's the part that was most exciting for both Lisa and I, connecting around these ideas of, of liminality and, and what it might mean to suggest that um, there is possibility in thinking beyond the categories and structures we've inherited. You're reminding me, I can just hear our colleague Rachel Wagner quoting bell hooks oh, yeah. that binary thinking is dominator thinking. Yes. And this liminality and this threshold theory is trying to live in the space uh, in between and over that. Tell, I, I, I say a little bit about the healing and transformative potential of that. That's really exciting to me to see um, this, these in between spaces um, have the possibility. How can they foster healing and transformation? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention that a little bit. So I wanted to add on to what Ariel said a little bit first. So for me, and I think Ariel would agree too, like this book was really like an onto epistemological work for us, which means it was like our way of knowing the way Ariel and I think and know things is connected to our existence and our way of being. So be, mm -hmm. like at the beginning, we introduced ourselves, we talked about existing beyond racial categories. Both of us discussed that. And we often talk about, does that make us uniquely positioned to understand some of these complex ideas? So I'm going to give an example of that. I myself am both Filipina and white. I am both of those things. And for some people that does not compute, they think mm -hmm. that those should be different things. I feel like my experience as a multiracial person has allowed me to see that you can be happy and sad about something at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's like, it is 
made me predisposed to understand some of the complexities of those ideas. And that's why this work is so connected to the way we are, which is really, Mm. and I'm hopeful that connects to your question because I'm hopeful that for other folks that have a similar experience where maybe they have a liminal identity or maybe they are really interested in complexities that this validates that experience. Yeah. So what I'm, uh, one of the things I do is coaching. And when I'm coaching folks, we often talk about the difference between the doing and being, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to do things, right, you make a list and you check it off. That's a great way to get the doing done. But when we're talking about being, uh, I often encourage a metaphor, right? How do you want to be in this conversation uh, that's maybe rife with conflict? Well, what's the metaphor, right? And, and, and there's uh, talk about analogies, identity analogies, some of those connections. And you also use the metaphor of bridging. I love that really simple example you give about um, racial and ethnic identity uh, and your understanding your experience of that, also teaching you about just emotional intelligence and how to navigate the world. And that's where I'm seeing the healing, the transformative potential in so many different aspects of life. Mm-hmm. And Ariel said earlier too, when you think about something through a binary lens, so whether it's, it has to be this or that, that is inherently limiting, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's, so when you open that up to like, what, what if it was something different or something new? I think that's what creates that transformative healing and just this idea of dreaming of something completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just going to add on, I feel like in student affairs, there's been a significant movement to recognize and and to explore and embrace critical perspectives, right? To recognize the ways that structures um, do not serve uh, all students the same. Uh, And I think part of what is so uh, appealing about this project and for for me, what's been so healing and, and personally liberatory is to not then just stay with the ways in which structures fall short or the ways in which drawing identity um, parallels or comparisons might be problematic, but then talking about, well, then what can we do differently? So Mm -hmm. instead of just staying focused on the problem, it's about imagining something else. And then through community with Lisa and with our contributing authors, being able to write our experiences into existence Mm -hmm. in ways that perhaps previous conceptualizations and frameworks didn't fully account for. And, And that has been, truly transformational. Well, let's go to, let's go to that then. Uh, just for our audience, we have a flow and we have completely blown it apart, just so you know, we're, we're freewheeling now. So I wanna know, it sounds to me like you two had coffee and a whole bunch of conversations <laughs> yeah. and kind of constructed this idea and this concept and this exploration and this richness from your own lives and saying, well, if we're seeing this and there's value for us, then maybe others too. You put out a call you get some people submitting things. You're as editors, you're reading these chapters and exploring. After you sort of had this idea, what did you learn from the authors who submitted? Like, what was like for mm-hmm. you, Lisa? What What did you learn? So much. So yeah. I was. I actually really appreciated at the beginning when you gave the example of like thinking about gender and race. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I when I was writing about these ideas. And I was talking with Ariel about it. I would always say, 
I would use the word minoritized in my description of like using this minoritized identity to help understand this other minoritized identity with compassionate caution, X, Y, Z words. And something that I learned, we got a a chapter that was contributed by Kyle and Brandon and um, that's Kyle Ashley and Brandon Cash. Mm -hmm. And they wrote about this through the lens of understanding dominance. Mm -hmm. And I think that really opened up my eyes because I thought that identity interconnections could only apply to a minoritized experience. But what's really interesting about their contribution is that they talk a little bit about how understanding whiteness may help them understand their male identity. And I was like, Mm -hmm. whoa, I was not thinking about it. And vice versa. Right. Yes, exactly. And I just thought that was so interesting. And I never would have thought to apply it that way. And I think that's going to be really helpful for student affairs practitioners and for students that are in college right now. Mm -hmm. Another really interesting contribution, which I had already mentioned was um, Dr. Antonio Duran's chapter, which he does a good job of situating this work, which Ariel talked a little bit about this being a post-structural piece within the third wave of student development theory, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting and really important. And it's another connection back to my dissertation because I'm situating liminality within the third wave as well. And so that was an important contribution. And then another one, um, Gina's, Gina Betancourt's chapter about class. She discusses um, class straddlers. So students that um, may change their socioeconomic status across time. And that was something that really helped me understand like, oh, that's another liminal identity. Of, mm-hmm. And that was something that I ended up including in my dissertation that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. And this is just the, some things I learned. I learned yeah, yeah. so much from our authors. Yeah. Well, I, I connect with that last one as someone who's my my very poor class background growing up is not my reality now. Right. But I often think like it is. <laughs> and I have to really work like, oh, I don't need to be worried about that. I don't need to be worried about getting the clothes on the line so we can save money on the dryer anymore. But I did for so many years. And so even though the situation changes, some of the values and the mindset um, doesn't. Um, Ariel, what did you learn from the contributing? What else did you learn? Yeah, I mean, the pieces that Lisa mentioned, absolutely. I think another thing that I took away from um uh, genius chapter was thinking about like and centering constructs. So this is something that Elisa Abes um, and, and her collaborators uh, focused on in that beautiful new blue book about. Um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna butcher the name, but it's like reexamining critical perspective, rethinking student development theory. There we go. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> and so they talk about the importance of constructs and thinking about and exploring student development along constructs instead of specific identities. And I think um, this idea of disclosure as a construct, so something that students have to navigate as social class straddlers and thinking about when they might have to disclose their identity to be eligible for different scholarships or financial aid, but how that is a similar process, a similar experience to students who are disclosing disabilities. Mm. And so thinking about, you know, for student affairs practitioners, understanding and, and coming to think more complexly about what disclosure means can help us better serve multiple populations rather than thinking about, oh, I need to learn about this student population and then this student right. population as like somehow very discrete and separate. So I think that- I, I love this example because I think it's a really good one about how it's similar, but not the same, right? If we're talking about disclosure of class background on a form versus going to a disability office to get accommodations versus coming out, Those are not the same at all, Uh, but there's some similarities and how do we do that? And then 
uh, again, this compassionate caution, what is similar, what is not, and let's slow down and make sure we're really thoughtful about some of the nuance. Yeah, Such a another, great example. another author who I think did a really powerful job of, of illustrating uh, similarities across very different positionalities was um, Hua's chapter. So um, in that, Hua talked about the unexpected connections that arose um, from her uh, identity and her connections as um, uh, an English as a second language speaker with someone who has a disability that impacts kind of his speech. And mm. so and now we're drawing connections between English as second language learners or speakers with a person with disabilities. Again, not necessarily right. populations you would normally think about in community, but you know, through this um, chapter, Hua's invited some important considerations of how there may be similarities in those experiences. And then of course, compassionate caution and noting the, the points of difference. The last chapter that I'll just mention that I think was um, really uh, an invaluable contribution to the overall project was Wendy Sasaki's chapter. So Wendy writes about um, an office that she is a part of um, at her institution that is really like an example of identity interconnections in practice. So what would it look like to structure student support services with identity interconnections at the forefront? Um, and thinking about how do we sometimes in our field problematically lump groups of students together and how can we, to use Lisa's word from earlier, nuance how we're understanding how Asian American, Pacific Islander, Middle Eastern, Desi mm -hmm. students may have similar but not the same experiences in college. I think this is so helpful because, as you just said, sometimes we problematically group students together, and sometimes we're problematically separating students out and saying these are very separate concerns when they have some potential for community and connection and coalition building and some of these things. And so again, we're just coming back to the both and the liminality, the nuance and the paradox and, and, and all of this. Um, and I think as you pointed to uh, critical perspectives, really exploring where the oppression rests, how does it play out? But this feels also, also paying attention to that, but also very generative. Like what are the possibilities? Where is the healing? What can we build? What can come from this? What learning can foster? Your subtitle points to some really practical kinds of things um, with Praxis from Ferry, one of my faves. Um, what would you offer as some key recommendations for practitioners who aren't necessarily theorizing or exploring new ways of thinking, but really are thinking about their office, their initiatives, their work with an individual student? What would you offer? Yeah. I would say um, to, to start with the power of stories, that stories are incredibly profound as a way to facilitate connection um, across different perspectives. And let's not just stop at where those similar stories kind of bubble up, right? Like Lisa and I, we started with exploring similarities and sharing stories about not fitting in or not feeling Asian enough, but we didn't stop there. We then like continued to explore, delve deeper into our stories and ask each other critical questions, which helped us begin to unpack the ways in which we also have had importantly different experiences. Um, I think something else to, to think about is um, the ways in which we are radically interrelated. So um, this might sound like woo-woo to some people, but I think- Love it, do it. <laughs> there's a, a lot of, um, I think, you know, scholarship and academic evidence, but also for my own personal experience that like attests to like who I am and how I move th through the world is inextricably connected to who you are, Keith, and to, mm -hmm. to who Lisa is, right? So it's naive to think that we are very discrete and separate and autonomous beings. So in understanding that, 
that means that my positionality is directly related to others. Mm -hmm. So if someone else is experiencing oppression, might I be complicit in that? And can I explore and excavate the ways in which we're radically interconnected as a way to then think about how I could be more accountable to yeah. things that I might not be conscious of, but be complicit in. Um, and I think uh, something that is a really practical kind of takeaway is this idea of listening with raw openness, which kind of goes back to some, some of Anna Louise Keating's writing, but it's really just as we share these stories and as we kind of engage in conversations with colleagues and with students about the potential of identity interconnections, can we listen with the intent mm -hmm. to be changed by what we hear? Yeah. Can we listen, not just to wait for our turn to say like, oh yeah, that's like my experience mm -hmm. um, or, or I totally understand that that's happened to me too. Yeah. But can we listen with the intent of reflecting upon the ways in which we may have, again, consciously or unconsciously contributed to someone else's marginalization or oppression? I really appreciate bringing this in because I, I was, I think you modeled that <laughs> in what you were just saying, talking about sharing your stories but then also meaning making those stories and asking each other questions and shifting those stories. It sounded to me as though both of you were sharing your stories, which are very personal, very connected to you, but then you weren't overly tied to those stories. You were willing to challenge them and explore them. And maybe where am I not thinking about this the right way? Or, or maybe that's an old story that's no longer my current story. And that raw openness of being willing to be changed, I think is a really great model. I, I love that you mentioned the interconnectedness. Um, because we are interconnected and thinking of you and me as entirely separate is Western, it's white, it's right. male. The, yeah. A lot of the world doesn't think about it that way. And so it's bringing in, that interconnectedness is bringing in a lot of Eastern traditions, a lot of indigenous ways of thinking and knowing about the world and a lot of collectivist culture ways. So um, I don't think we need to apologize for that. We can just lean right into it as a great way of modeling. So thank you for doing that. Um, Lisa, what would you offer to those practitioners who are maybe listening to this on their lunch break in their office and have an afternoon full of meetings? What would you offer to some sure. of those folks? I think I would give tangible examples of how to actually apply compassionate caution in action mm. and praxis. So I think it's really important to really be attentive to how when we're drawing these parallels and connections, how folks may be unintentionally contributing to the oppression of others. And with that awareness, being able to show up better. And some of those tools that Ariel and I have discussed, and we've written about a little bit further, it's not necessarily in this book, but we've started to write about it together, is thinking well, through- We're going to have to do a part two, aren't we? Right, exactly. <laughs> so thinking through solidarity. So it's interesting. A lot of times when I share this concept with others, they bring up this piece of solidarity. So- with that in applying compassionate caution, recognizing again, the commonalities across the differences. So Ariel and I have shared this example multiple times, but how transracial adoptees and multiracial people have to figure out how to transgress race and monoracism, that may be a way that we can work in solidarity to disrupt that larger system of power. Mm -hmm. um, I think another piece is engaging, inspiring allyship and knowing that this doesn't just it, it's not a point of arrival. You don't just pick yeah. up this book and read it and then you're good to go and you're set, but rather it's an ongoing process that's rooted in relational and cultural humility, which is another word that we've kind of used a little bit, but it's understanding that in these conversations, the way I describe it to, to other students and to other people is that I'm going to fall short because I'm a human. Mm -hmm. And because I don't know every single 
identity experience. So I'm going to fall short, but what does it mean? What do you do when you fall short and recognizing those? And that's actually a term that comes from nursing, which is really Mm -hmm. interesting. Cultural humility. Yeah. Cultural humility. Yeah. Yeah. And then this last piece of thinking about intentional coalition building. So working across differences to facilitate some of these healing opportunities that we've discussed and recognizing that our liberation is connected and specific and explicit examples of that are thinking through like even some of our networks and some of our like knowledge communities within these larger umbrella student organizations. What does it mean to engage coalition building in those or just in other groups and organizations that we're in? Same with student work. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and I think those uh, professional association subgroups are a lot like student orgs, right? Right, exactly. Uh, and how do we how do, how do we create space for people to have unique and different conversations, but also create space for those organizations to come together? Um, I think we've got some great models of that, and and some not so great models of that. Um, well, we, we are running out of time, so um, uh, the podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And we always want to end with just offering uh, our guests an opportunity to share. What are you What are you thinking about? You pointed to that. You're already writing other things that are, isn't even in the book. What are you thinking about now? What are you pondering now? What are you troubling now? It might be related to this, might be other things. And then also, if folks want to connect with you, what would be a great way for them to do that? So uh, Lisa, what are, you, what are you troubling now? Yeah, I think whenever I bring up this idea, I worry that folks will conflate this drawing parallels piece to things being exactly the same. And I know I've said this a few times, but I just want to emphasize that when we're drawing identity interconnections across and between these systems of power, it does not assert sameness, Mm -hmm. but rather it invites this opportunity to look at these things with nuance and look at both the similarities and the differences and realizing that compassionate caution is key. And I think also I really something I've been thinking about since we started talking on a podcast was Ariel at the beginning mentioning critical perspectives. And I want to talk a little bit. I wonder if other folks have had this experience, but when I was a master's student at Miami, it was one of the first times that I was digging deep, intentionally digging deep into learning about systems of power, privilege, and oppression. And I remember, and I was there during 2016. So during the presidential election in 2016, and it became a really dark place for me. I remember just feeling really hopeless, like there was nothing I could do to help disrupt the systems of power. And oftentimes, I don't know if I've ever told Ariel this, but I think about the Rihanna song, like we found love in a hopeless place Mm. and doing this work with Ariel and finding like this post-structural thinking really made me feel like I could find hope in the, within the criticality. And the way that we describe it in the book is that, um, we, Ariel and I both believe that post-structural perspectives are a yes and to critical approaches. If I could go back and change that now, I would probably say like a yes and dot, dot, dot with that, Mm. like dot, 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 trying to create this image of like possibilities. Like we're hoping that this work inspires hope, possibilities. And Ariel always talks about it of like, this is hard work, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth it. And what does it look like to create something new beyond what exists that's created for and by people with minoritized identities rather than by those with dominant identities? And so that's just what I've been thinking about since we've been on the call. Yeah, I, I love that. That's I, I'm pretty sure that's the first Rihanna mentioned on the podcast so far in over almost two years. So <laughs> way, to, way, to, way to bring that in. I appreciate that. 
if people want to connect with you, uh, okay. so how can they do that? Yeah, um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. You can just look up my name, but also my social media pl platforms, all of them are lcombs11. Awesome, awesome. And Ariel, what are you uh, troubling, pondering, noodling now? Well, actually, just hearing Lisa talk made me think about how in some ways right now and in, in the field of student affairs and higher education, it can feel like a really dark place, <laughs> right? We've got folks that are, you know, leaving the field. We are facing issues around recruitment and enrollment and graduate preparation programs, not uh, withstanding, you know, thinking about undergraduate and what the future of higher education is even going to look like. And so for me, one of the things that's kind of coming up as we talk about the potential of identity interconnections in the field is just what it means to ideate with others, to be in community, and rather than kind of get mired in the scarcity mindset that is so prevalent right now. Hard um, not to be there. Hard not to be there right now. For sure. And and right, we all have moments. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I think that is, that's, that's real. It's part of the mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. But instead of getting stuck there to find folks that energize you to begin to imagine new possibilities. I think the reality of the, the state of higher education is that student affairs is evolving, right? Um, as we have figured out providing services for students virtually, I mean, it's just, it's continually changing. And so being open to that and, and recognizing that, that that change may hold incredible possibilities for not just how we can continue to be relevant as student affairs educators, but also how we can begin to reimagine some of our practices and some of our ways of thinking that allows us actually to better support and serve and center those students that higher education was never built for in the first place. Um, so I think that's something that to me is just trying to find hope and excitement, even amidst yeah. Um, a time that can be certainly challenging. Well, right. both of you pointed to this notion of merging sort of critical perspectives about what's not working, what are oppressive systems, and we need that understanding. And then you're also saying, and what do we want to create? Where what are we what are we hoping for? Right. What do we want to build? What does liberation look like? Yes. And I, I think another uh, dichotomy binary we get into is if you're talking about hope and liberation, then you're not critical enough, right? right? Yeah. And how do we create the liminality? Because if 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 you have just have hope without that critical understanding, then you're really missing. But if all you're doing is pointing out oppression everywhere it goes, and you're not building something forward, um, where's that going to lead us? And and so I, I love the both and that you're bringing in here. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, and then you two can, I know you want to get in. Uh, Lisa, you were talking before about um, the aspiring part and the messiness and I'm going to make mistakes and I'm human. Uh, it just pointed to me this, this notion of perfectionism being so destructive. Mm -hmm. And as Tim Oakman points out, uh, perfectionism is a component of white supremacy culture. So how does perfectionism, you have to know all the right answers you have to have uh, before you intervene, before you speak up, before you say something, you have to know you're going to get it right and have all the answers. And, and we get in this stuck in this, again, Western, white, male dominant way of knowing and being the expert and having all the answers before we dabble, experiment, try some of that. Yeah. I think um, this was something that crossed my mind earlier and, and relates exactly to what you were just saying, Keith, around perfectionism. It makes me think of Carol Dweck's work around growth mindset mm -hmm. and fixed mindset. And I think for better or worse, even though you know we are educators by, by trade and training, mm -hmm. 
oftentimes there is this pressure, whether it's internalized or um, social, that especially when it comes to issues of social justice or allyship, it's got to be perfect or you're going to get called out, right? Like you're going to cause harm. And I think, you know, there is um, some utility in exploring, like, what does it mean to maintain that perspective of humility that like, I can be trying really hard as an ally and I can know that I'm going to fall short and that when others choose to hold me accountable, that actually is a gift, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They don't have to do that. They could dismiss me or write me off. And so leaning into the possibilities of what a growth mindset can mean as we think about connecting with each other and then better showing up for one yeah. another. Well, and waiting until you have all the answers and you'll always get it right is a wonderful way to not take any responsibility and not take any action with really good justification or rationale. Exactly. Right? Which I've done a time or two. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, what do you want to add here? Oh, well, I, I, you said it perfectly earlier. I just wanted to add that. Oh, let's not say that. I said it messily and you're you like, said, yeah, let's, take yeah, that, you let's take that P word out of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Ahead. You're right. After we just talked about perfectionism. <laughs> um, but I, I was going to add earlier when you were talking about how I like how you talked about how criticality and post-structuralism can coexist. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to add that, um, when we talk about post-structuralism, that's not to negate that systems of power exist. I think that's another um, misconception about post-structuralism okay. is that when we talk about these post-structural perspectives, it means that we are negating that there's racism or we're negating that there's no, no. The power. And that's exactly what we're trying not to say. Yeah. And that's another piece that I would want to leave with listeners is that post-structuralism post doesn't mean that we are not acknowledging those systems of power. It means that we're saying, yes, they exist. And here's how we want to move mm -hmm. forward. Well, as long as we're name dropping, we're this whole conversation here we're having, as we conclude, is reminding me of Chris Wren's talk. I think it was at Ash about critical perspectives and generative thinking. Mm -hmm. All right. And um, I really appreciate that. Uh, Ariel, where might folks who want to connect with you be able to connect with you? Yes, um, LinkedIn and email are, are usually the best. I, I used to be on social media, but I actually um, have removed myself from social media just for personal wellness. So old school. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Well, thank you both so much. This has just been amazing and terrific. And I'm really appreciative of the conversation. I'm really appreciative of the book. Uh, go out and grab it. It's a it's a really wonderful and, and fun read with all of the stories that, that you all have mentioned. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors for today's episode, Stylus and Simplicity. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor for the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their Student Affairs Diversity and Professional Development titles at styluspub.com. You can use the promo code SANOW for 30% all of their books, plus free shipping, including Identity Interconnections, which we've been talking about. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. And Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including, but not limited to, career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. A huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the work behind the scenes to make us look and sound good. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and add your email to our MailChimp list to be the first to learn about our new episodes. While you're there, check out our archives. 
I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guests today. Thank you so much for the conversations, the insights, and everything that you're sharing and your great new book. To those who are watching and listening, please make it a great week. Thank you.